0: We are talking this morning about one of the things that I think is going to be hopefully uh, really helpful for everybody in here. And the reason I say that is because when we gather together, uh, we know that there are um, lots of you who have walked in this morning, and this is your you know hundredth time to church, whether it's our church or a church like this, or perhaps your thousandth time to a church, and church and things of Jesus and Christianity are, are super normal to you. Um, and for some of us, when you walk in the room, and this is your first time to church ever, or your first time to church or a church like this in a long, long, long time. And when we come to together um, and talk about what we're going to talk about today. This is a subject that we have all dealt with and wrestled with on both sides of the aisle, if we can call it that. And the idea, if you spend any time around Christianity or around church, is that at some point, someone like me gets up and gives a sermon on something along the lines of we should be good and we should be active in talking about and sharing our faith, And when it comes to Christians, especially, um, <clears throat> we'll hear a sermon like this and we'll walk away from it and think, yeah, we should go do that. We should go, you know, tell people about Jesus, the good news, the hope, the message of Jesus. You, you know, go on attack uh, a text like Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. so we should, you know, go and Acts chapter one, he says, you know, be my witnesses. And your basically your city, your state, your country and into and the world and, and beyond. I want you to be my witnesses. Witnesses. And so as Christians, you know, we, we, we run out in the streets and we don't really run out in the streets, but, you know, thinking I'm going to go invade hell with squirt guns, you know, and, and you like walk in your office Monday morning, you got a cup of water and you're doing like surprise baptisms on people and, you know, baptize. But um, <laughs> if we're being really honest, the, the part of the difficulty is none of us or or very few of us are actually really good at it. And it seems like the people who are good at it aren't actually good at it. They're just socially awkward enough to not pick up on social cues. So they just don't care. Right. Um, And and, and you've experienced this. And, and the the truth is, I think part of this is because we're not really taught how to, Um, we're just told do it. Uh, But it's an interesting subject to take um, a level of spirituality in a non-spiritual environment and transition to that conversation. Uh, When I first got engaged or, my wife and I got engaged. We were walking um, off Meridian Road. There's this uh, beautiful, you know, trails and all that kind of stuff back kind of behind McClay School and McClay Gardens. And, and as we were walking back there, uh, I, we sat down on this bench and it was overlooking this lake. And I knew this was the spot I was going to propose. And, and I had never thought about, at some point you got to transition, right? So how do you go from like, <clears throat> is Taggart going to be able to redeem the team, the team this year to, do you want to spend the rest of your life with me? You know, and it's just kind of like, what are you doing? Nothing. What what are you doing? Well, what are you doing the rest of your life? You know, it's just this this kind of interesting transition. And I think that's what that's what we experience because it's like, how do you even start the conversation? And so, what we oftentimes see, or at least I like to make fun of, it as if it happens, is people have the really goofy, kind of corny, almost pickup lines transitions. Um, it's like. <clears throat> You're watching ESPN with your buddies, and, and you're, you know, looking. They're saying, oh, you know, is, is, are the warriors better without Durant, uh, a.k.a. Satan? Um, and, and just kidding, by the way. You know, are, are they better without Durant? And, you know, we don't know. And are they, yes, or are they, no? And you're, you're, you're sitting there saying, speaking of better without, no one is better without Jesus. You know, and they're like dude, I'm just trying to watch SportsCenter, man, or um, you watch uh, if you are familiar with Florida State baseball right now, Tim Becker, the folk hero. I mean, my man is on fire right now, and if you don't know who that is, just hang out in Tallahassee for about another couple of weeks, and you will know this guy is turning into a legend really quickly, and you're saying, speaking of home runs, did you know that our Savior had a home run on the cross in <laughs> death and resurrection, and you're like, All right, man, like I was just trying to watch stuff. This this is, I was just, I was, in preparation, I was thinking, okay, what are some funny ones? Or I don't know if they're funny or not, but I just think like, what are the corniest ones you can think of? And so I was thinking, maybe you're at work. And someone's like, hey, I want you to come look at this spreadsheet. And you say, speaking of spreadsheets, did you know our Savior was spread on the cross in his death and resurrection for the the death of your sins? But isn't it true that the problem is Talking about spiritual things in a non-spiritual environment, if you're on the faith side of it, or on the part that's perhaps wrestling with faith, it can oftentimes seem really awkward, and it's forced information. You're just sitting there in your cubicle wanting somebody to give you some objective advice about the spreadsheet that you're doing, and all of a sudden, this dude's telling you or this chick's telling you about Jesus, and you're like, all right, cool. I have this, and it's due in an hour, so can you just look at it for me and tell me if my equation's? are right. And isn't this true? We oftentimes as Christians know we ought to, but don't actually engage in spiritual conversations because we don't know how to make it not awkward. And then if you're on the side that you're wrestling with faith, thinking about faith, or maybe you're not wrestling with faith at all, you're just, you know, sitting on the airplane next to the guy who opens up his Bible and you're thinking, oh good grief, here we go. Because it's just this awkward, kind of forced, information. So what I want to do is in the book of acts in chapter 3 Peter and John are going to begin to engage in a process. It's actually a narrative that's going to take a, take up a couple chapters. But today, specifically, we're going to look at chapter 3. And here's what I'm hoping. I hope that what we learn is so different than perhaps what we have presupposed as how we spread the good news of Jesus. And I hope that perhaps if you're in here and you're a Christian, this reorients how you think about talking about spiritual things in a non-spiritual environment. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you at least listen and you say, man, I wish somebody would actually do that. Because if they did that, perhaps I would think differently about Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 3. In Acts 3, um, Acts is essentially the story of the early church. Uh, a guy named Luke documented the life of Jesus, interviewed a bunch of people. He was a doctor, he was a historian. interviewed lots of people, wrote the, the account of Jesus' life in the book of Luke, and then he transitions to write to a same guy, Theophilus, and in the book of Acts, a Counts for what happened post Jesus' death and resurrection, ascends into heaven, and now you have the start of the church. Now, the apostles, or the people who followed Jesus, his closest disciples, had a bit of a conundrum at this point, because up to this point in their lives, they had never been at the center of ministry. They were always the ones that were observing Jesus' ministry. They were the ones that Jesus would say, do this, and he, they would say, we don't know how, and he'd say, you have a little faith, and then he, he'd go do it himself. Well, now all of a sudden, the church has started. The Holy Spirit's come down. Peter stands up and gives the, gives the sermon. About 3,000 people come to faith. And at the end of chapter 2, it tells us these are, the, these are the few things that the church did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And day by day, they did all this stuff, and numbers were added to them daily. And chapter 3 begins a narrative that I think has principles that radically change how many of us view this idea of evangelism. Because again, we know we ought to, we just don't know how to, or at least not how to without being incredibly weird about it. So Acts chapter three, this is what happens. Acts chapter three. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a man, lame from birth, not like as in like didn't have friends from birth, but but couldn't walk, was being carried... Who thanks person in the fourth row? <clears throat> who they laid at the gate of the temple that is called beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So there's a person who can't walk. Um, every day they bring him, they put him at the, the gate of the temple. They think perhaps these religious folks, perhaps he was you know of the, of the tradition of the Jewish um, uh, religion at the time, and you know would lay him at the gate as people were about to in, walk in, and you kind of would would beg and would ask and would beg and would ask. So he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said. And I think this, this is a little three words that I think begin to unlock the perspective that this story is so easy to go and to read and to miss. So Peter and John look at him, directed their gaze towards them, and he says, hey, look at us. Look at me. Now, that might seem inconsequential, but I think the, the power of that was this began to express the depth to which the disciples cared deeply, the integrity of the individual. Um, many of you haven't been homeless before. When, I, when we first started the church, this was seven or eight years ago, and my wife and I were just about to get married. And we, uh, I had a time period where I had about two and a half or three months between when my lease ended at my house and when uh, we were going to get married. We were going to move in, and so I was kind of praying about God. What do I? What, what should you have me to do at this time? I've got a unique set of, you know. Uh, a, a timeline kind of the last few months of, of, you know, kind of singleness in a sense. And uh, you know, God, what do you want me to do to redeem this time and to leverage it uniquely? I knew we were starting the church and I knew the, the part of the, the centrality of our church is that we would love and serve and care for those who are vulnerable and marginalized uh, in our community. That mostly means poor. And I had never lived a, a life um, that didn't have a lot of uh, very um, privileged background and upbringing so I just felt like God was calling me to live uh, for a few months homeless here in Tallahassee, and so I did. And when you first do that, you know, there's this sense of like, you know, you're kind of trying to fit in and, and do some things along those lines. But, but the, more, the longer I lived on the streets, the more as I would interact with people who weren't on the streets, they would begin to associate me with people who were in homeless situations, which at that time and still to this day are my friends. And what was interesting was the longer and the more you start to actually look the part, the less and less people actually look at you who aren't in that same stage and area of life. And you don't know how meaningful it is. You don't know how much value it builds into the person until you are a person that people avoid making eye contact with this guy had lived his entire life with people perhaps making and shifting their eyes away from this person because if I don't make eye contact with you, I don't have to pretend. I get to pretend like you don't exist. And so Peter says, no, 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 look at me. Look at me, you matter. And the guy thinks he's about to get some gold or some silver. He fixed his attention on them, verse 5, and expecting expecting them to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So rise up and walk. And he took him by his right hand. He raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. In leaping, he stood, which is kind of cool because it's not just now he had the ability to walk because he had never walked before. There was there there would have been literally no muscle. He would have if he had the ability to walk, he would have no mu- muscle to actually give him the strength to it. So all of a sudden, he has the ability to jump up. He leaps up. He starts to walk. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk. He entered the temple with walking and leaping and praising God. Some people, some people get, like, geeked out. They're like, oh, you know, he walked and he lived, and then he finally praised God. I'm like, dude, he could just walk for the first time. Give my man some slack. And the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized that he was the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Here is where this is going. The people had an expectation. They had an expectation when they walked up that they saw a guy that that was kind of sitting on the side and he was begging and they'd seen this guy every single time, this gate, I mean, for years and years and years and years and years, they saw old Willie who was sitting there or old Billy who was sitting there or Raul who was sitting there or whatever his name is, right? So they see my dude sitting there and they're expecting that he's gonna be sitting there when they come out. But what they saw when they went in exceeded what they expected to see. And when that happened, Peter stood up and gave a sermon. Here's the point. When Peter stood up and gave a sermon, he wasn't giving unwanted information. They were amazed at what they saw because what they saw exceeded what they expected to see. In other words, the fruit of the spirit of the life of Peter and John displayed something that created inside of people questions. And when he gave them information, which he was about to do, He was answering questions that they already had. Here's the point. Our lives as Christians should display something that goes beyond what people expect to see. And that ought to develop a moral authority that people want to know. Why or how? Because it exceeds what the expectation is of normal. In other words, they ought to, there ought to be something about us that's so loving. And I don't mean just loving as in you're just nice to people, because that's sure, that's a part of loving. But I mean, like you assume the best about people. You're kind to people. You're joyful with people. You're, you're, also, you're generous to people. But also at the same time, man, when something's going on, you love somebody enough to be honest with them, but not to be degrading towards them. You don't do what everybody else does at the office. You don't talk about that person to everybody else. You actually just talk to that person because you care about that person and they know that you care about them. There's a sense of generosity. There's a sense of forgiveness. And we, I think, all have as a culture like virtues of some of that stuff. Come on, you know people, I know people that when we experience them, there's just something different about the way that they do it. And you respect them for it. The interesting thing is, I think for us as we don't set ourselves up for success in conversations because we begin to present information to questions nobody's asking because they don't see anything different. Now, now isn't this true? If you're in here and you're, you're not a Christian or you're wrestling with faith, you're not really sure where you are I mean, you've had tons of experiences before, and, and just there's so much information now, and, and you've got some hurt, and you've got some backstory, and you've got some pain. And then someone tries to come up to you and have a conversation, but you've seen how they live. And <laughs> you're sitting there thinking, wait, you're going to tell me about that? And you don't mean that degradingly, but just the honest truth is, there hasn't been a sense. That there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. There's nothing really attractive or winsome about their life. And so they begin to tell you information. But they haven't built the, the authority to speak that information into your life. But with the early church, it wasn't like that. It wasn't just a bull in the china shop. This is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to do. They saw something that created questions. And when Peter stood up and he gave what he's about to read, what we're about to read through in this sermon, Peter was simply explaining what was going on with the dynamic thing that they were now witnessing, which was a movement of God. Continues and he says, people. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made them walk? In other words, hey, I want you to know that it's not that we're doing this incredible act. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Now he's truthful with them and he says, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Well, he had decided to release him. If you're not familiar with that story, Jesus was about to go to the cross. Um, they, they wanted to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate basically says, man, I find nothing wrong with this guy. He has him beat to try to discount and say, maybe if we have not beat within an inch of his life, they're going to let him go. <clears throat> they say, no, we don't want to let him go. So he says, Pilate didn't even find anything wrong with him, but you you know, were pushing. and He wanted to release him at first, but you denied, verse 14, the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. That is, there was a murderer that was released instead of Jesus. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. And this is huge. They didn't have belief in belief. They didn't have hope in hope. They didn't have faith in faith. They saw. They were witnesses to, eyewitnesses of a resurrected Jesus. And they say because of the evidence of what we saw, we believe he actually has the power to forgive. He says, let me connect these dots, verse 16. And by his name, and by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is beautiful, what Peter does. Because Peter essentially says, when you see that thing that's different, Don't look at me in awe. I want to redirect your gaze to say the reason why I am this way, the reason why this guy is this way, the reason why the fruit is this way is simply a reflection of who God is. Right? Someone looks at you and they say, man, it just seems like no matter what's going on, you have this sense of peace. It seems like no matter what's going on, you know, you have this this overwhelming, you know, you you just, even though it's tough that you don't lose your joy in that. It seems like no matter what's going on, you have the ability to forgive. And oftentimes the Christian response is, yeah, well, you know, you know it's because God gives me the power and the strength, too. And so this, that's what you see. And I think that that's true to a degree. But I think the truth is, is that everything we do is, is a reflection of who Jesus is. In other words, <clears throat> this is doing saying, yeah, you know, it's because of God. And saying, you know what? I'm not naturally a forgiving person, but I realize that I have been so deeply forgiven. That I can't help but forgive. I'm not honestly naturally this loving of a person, but I know that I have a God who so overwhelmingly loves me in spite of my insufficiencies. I can't help but love people who are also insufficient just like me. He continues as he, by the way, says this. Because it's not just this, like, you, you know, you're horrible, you're wrong, you've sinned. Because what we do believe is that we all share this commonality of we are all sinful. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of that God in his perfection cannot have sin in his presence. And we, you know, no matter how good we are, we're still going to be sinful. But God didn't expect us to prove our way into his good graces. In fact, he continues on. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as it also your rulers. And I love this, because he, he assumes the best of the people that he's speaking to. He's not saying, you know, man, you guys are just so bad. Like, wow, I am in awe of you awful people. He says, no, 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 like, look, 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 I get it. You, you didn't know. It wasn't intentional. I mean, th- just because it wasn't intentional doesn't change the fact that we have sinned. But, but I know it wasn't this intentional thing. You were ignorant. And let me just tell you, too, I once was ignorant as well. And so this isn't a sense of condemnation, but let me kind of assume the best and tell you what we are to do with this. He says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that that he may send Christ appointed for you. Jesus, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. <laughs> At this point, it's about the point where we get to Peter's sermon. We're like, dude, I am zoning out because that's like a bunch of religious speak that I'm really just not terribly sure exactly what the point or what he's saying is. And, and here's what Peter is saying and is about to say. In the Jewish thought, and this is, this is very, very important. In the Jewish thought. Their primary hurdles or obstacles to a belief in Jesus were two-part. One, all of the things that the prophets said about the Messiah, we don't see all of them in Jesus. Number two, the primary thing that we were looking for in a Messiah that we have not seen in Jesus is that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to restore the nation of Israel to its place of political prominence, to its place of power, (laughs) And I don't know if you looked around, apostles. I don't know if you looked around, Peter. But Rome is still in charge, and we aren't. Jesus so says, come on. The prophets, Peter would say, began to talk about this, would testify about this. He says, go back and examine the prophets. He picks up in verse, uh, verse uh, 21, who says, whom heaven must receive and all that. Verse 22, Moses said that the Lord God will raise you up, raise up for you a prophet Like me, from your brothers, you shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel to those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. Between the preceding verses and and, and these verses, here's essentially what he was saying to them One, the Messiah isn't done. And two, all the prophets speak about this. Now, I understand. In our current context, (laughs) we're not like, oh my gosh, you know, I hear all that and I believe in Jesus now, because that was my biggest objection to faith. But here, here is what is so beautiful about what Peter just did. Peter knew the people he was speaking to so well, that instead of saying, this is what you should believe and leaving it at that, he says, let me help you to wrestle through your biggest obstacle to faith. I know that your obstacles to faith or that the Messiah was going to restore it and the prophets didn't talk about it, but let me help you to see through Moses, through all kinds of people, let me help to remove your obstacles of faith. Now, if you're in here and you're a Christian, this radically changes the narrative that we have bought into about evangelism. Because what we believe is I have to go into a forced conversation of awkwardness and to to present unwanted information. What Peter did was as they saw what was happening, what was happening through God, the movement of God, they saw the evidence of his life. He says, well, let me connect you to how this evidence connects to God. And by the way, I know that we all have hurdles to faith. And so let me remove or at least help you to sift through. at least show you how I have sifted through this biggest obstacle of faith of yours. If you're wrestling with faith, wouldn't this be wildly different? If someone, instead of just coming in and forcing a conversation, they built the, immoral, they built the moral authority that you saw something different, something that, you, that, that was beyond what's expected in terms of their relationship with Jesus, in terms of how they lived, and when you were wondering and kind of thinking, their first thought wasn't, this is what you should believe. It was, I want you to know that I'm, I'm just like this way because of Jesus. And by the way, before I give you imposed information, let me just ask you, what's your biggest hurdle to faith? Because isn't it true? You have been through some stuff. You have had some experiences. In fact, you have a mixture probably of experience and information, and there's these gaps, there's these things that don't make sense right? You have been hurt by a church leader. You have been hurt by the church as a whole. You've been hurt by a Christian. You have seen some stuff. You have seen incredible hypocrisy. You've been a part of a church that it seemed like the closer you got, the more hypocritical and the more hollow it felt. And you just, it just repulsed you. And then you heard some different information about Genesis 1 in opposition to Genesis 2 and Isaiah in three parts and the Synoptic Gospels and John's Gospel. Where in the world did that come from? And who wrote Hebrews? And what is Revelation? And you have all of these critiques and understandings and information and somebody just comes in and says here's my testimony and you think good for you I don't care because that doesn't even kind of answer my hesitations my obstacles and hang-ups. wouldn't it be different if there was something so attractive about their life that you wanted to know They were like everybody, they were one of the few people who there was something so different, something so winsome about their life. And then when they spoke, they weren't, they weren't forcing, forcing, forcing. They were, in fact, the opposite. They were kind and they were considerate and respectful that at the core of who we are as people are our core beliefs. And to change that is a huge shift. And so they took the time. And instead of devaluing you by telling you what you ought to believe, they valued you by asking, what do you believe? And what are your biggest hang-ups and hurdles? What's your biggest obstacle as you think about faith? Is it intellectual? Is it emotional? Is it experiential? Is it theological? I love how he ends this sermon, by the way. He talks in verse 44 that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel from those days who came after him and also proclaim these days. Verse 25, he says, and by the way, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. This is important. For their audience, for the Jewish audience, they were the people of Abraham. They were the people of the covenant of God. They were the ones who were to inherit what would be The Messiah and so he says come on you he says we're we're the people of God and you remember what, what God made with your father Abraham verse 25 he said he said to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed God having raised up his servant he said he sent him to you first I love this. It's almost like you say, come on, come on. Don't think because you have sinned. Don't think for them, I think, which was much more difficult, it was much less palatable, because they were literally the ones who would have been in Jerusalem at that point who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He says, come on, I don't want you to think that because you didn't care about God and his son Jesus, that means that God doesn't care about you. He values you. He cares about you. You are in the family of God. You are in the covenant of God. You are in the covenantal community of God. In fact, I want you to feel proud because God has chosen you to reveal this to you of all people in all time first. In other words, you matter to God whether or not God has ever mattered to you. And yeah, of course, you've done stuff. We've all done stuff. But he sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. It's not to condemn you. It's not to make you feel like a horrible person. It's not. He came to bless. He came to give. He came to help. He came to seek. He came to save. And he came to serve. Now, again, wouldn't this be different? If the strategy of the church was not to go force information but to live a life that displayed a fruit that actually created questions inside of people, how could people actually be that others focused? How could they actually, I mean, genuinely serve that much? And then we just pointed and said, man, the reason is not because (laughs) because I'm so good, it's because I serve a God who I have been so deeply rebellious against, and he served me, and so if he served me, I can't help but serve everybody around me. And by the way, you matter to God. You matter to God so much that he sent his son to die for you. And so in that same vein, let me ask you this. Because you matter to God, I think the individual, you matter to God. So what's your biggest obstacle to faith? What's your biggest hang-up? And how can I help? And honestly, maybe I can't help. Maybe I don't know the answer. But maybe... More than an answer, you just need to know that a Christian actually cares. Not with a prepackaged, pre canned, pre ideaed version of what you should know, but they just actually care about you. Isn't that true? Half of it isn't that, that Christians need to have all the answers, you just need to know that a Christian cares more than they just simply want to impose their beliefs. Best way I can I think you know kind of illustrate this whole thing um, is in sermons in sermon form I've talked about my family a whole bunch I've talked about my kids specifically and and little Rhody and little Ava so um, I figured this morning to kind of to, to end this and give you a picture of it I wanted to, I wanted to show you um, <laughs> them before I yeah, go on for the rest of the summer and tell you about them so we actually have a picture um, that Ashley took during Christmas time so this is Rhody and Ava everybody say aw look at you guys. So sweet. <clears throat> so, so Rhodey, the thing I love about, um, I'll start with Ava actually. She's a little bit older. So she's about four years, a little over four years old now. And she is like the sweetest girl on earth. And I am genuinely hoping about middle school. She hits the most awkward period in terms like super ugly. Cause to me, she's, she's really cute. And I'm like, if you stay cute like this, I'm going to have to, I'm going to be forced to get full body tattooed and get on steroids and get some guns because <clears throat> <laughs> fellas stay away. Like that just ain't happening. Um, <laughs> (laughs) One of my favorite things is she has a a unique ability to put her shoes on the wrong feet all the time, and we as parents should know that, but if you look in the picture, she actually has shoes... We saw that later. And we're like, dang it. You know, there's one of those things like sometimes you feel like you're killing it as a parent. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe not. Um, <laughs> she, by the way, she, the, they have a very interesting difference that she, lo- I mean, she will, she will literally eat every muffin in the kids' ministry room right now. Um, Rhodes, if you gave him a, a cho- choice between like um, a muffin and a steak or a pork chop, my man's going steak slash pork chop all day. Um, he is, mu- yeah, <laughs> somebody's like, "Woo!" all right, good. So, <clears> Road, <throat> um, Rhodes cracks me up. But here's, here's what actually frustrates me about Rhodes. Um, one, um, his name is Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S. Um, his grandpa called him Highway, um, which we realized really quickly that could be R-O-A-D-S. Anyways, um, Rhodes is a little sweetheart, man. He's actually, this is what frustrates me about him. He is the chillest kid. Like, he's the only person I've met that's more relaxed than me. And I've, I'm like, dude, you're two. Get out of here. Um, he loves savory stuff. And... and <laughs> If you've ever seen actually the Sour Patch, uh, or, oh gosh, what is it? There's, there's, there's one little candy where it's like one minute it's sour and then it's sweet. And it's like one minute it like chops off a girl's hair and then it like hugs her leg. Like that is my dude to a T. Like he is the cuddliest little sweetest little dude in the world. But at the same time, when he digs his heels in, I love his stubbornness. But at the same time, I'm like, dude, stop. You're being a, annoying right now. We're just going to leave it at that because we're in church, right? Like, like you're being ridiculous. Now, now, here's here's why I bring it up, and here's why I, I, I show you this, because because what I just did is I just gave you a bunch of information about my kids, but what I hope is I think that they're incredibly cute. None of that information. Was information that you categorically did not want to know. When I showed this to you, even if you're like like super tough, like you're in here with a girl and she's you know she's like oh and you're just sitting there like oh cute you know because you want to impress her. So I get that. But but you look at this and then I tell you this is, this is, these are the things about my my daughter Ava. These are things about my you know my boy Rhodes. And and this is, these these are the things that they like. These are the personality types that they have. And no one thought, boo, you know I could care less. You want to know why? It wasn't forced information because you were interested in the content, because what you saw drove interest. Here's all I'm saying. What if that was the picture of how we help people who are wrestling with faith come to an awareness of a God who so deeply loves and serves us that when we talk, we are not forcing information We're simply answering questions to an audience that's captive. And we care deeply enough about the individual to take the time and the space to say, what is your biggest obstacle to faith? And I might not be able to answer it. (laughs) In fact, I probably won't be able to answer it. But I want you to know that I care. And maybe there's a chance I could help. Or maybe there's a chance that I've wrestled with that same thing, and this is just for me how I've wrestled with that thought. Because you matter to God, even if God has never mattered to you. So let me end by saying this. If you're a Christian, is there anything about your life that people would see People who are wrestling with faith, outside of faith, just you know totally disbelieve of faith. Is there anything about your life that people would see and want to know more? And when they do, how would it be different if your first thought was not, now here is my testimony. I mean, sure, it might be a tool in the bag, it might be something that you talk about at some point. I once was blind, but now I see. But what if it was more about the other person than it was about the the information that you had to communicate? What if we weren't a bull in a china shop? What if we didn't just always bring it up randomly and awkwardly on the airplane? What if we had people that we interacted with, our life built the moral authority that drove conversations, and when we got to those conversations, it wasn't about us, it was about, hey, yeah, of course I have beliefs, but let me ask you, what do you believe? And what's your biggest obstacle to faith? Because I have a God who so loved me and served me that he gave a son to die for me. And I believe he did the same thing for you. So I'm willing to take the time. I'm willing to with my family play the long game. I'm willing to with my friends take the time to invest in the conversation. To say, What is your biggest obstacle to faith? And how can I help? And my guess is if you're here and you have been hurt and burned by people who when they talked about belief were so unaware and they were a bull in a china shop to the hurt and the experiences and the information that you have I pray you experience some people who display the love of God the God who so loved us he valued us and you are valuable to him I hope you experience some Christians who display that Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much that you can take a text like this, that we can look and see a sermon that is a little bit different than perhaps what we would, how we would, we would outline it, but God, to their audience, it's just so clear that as there was these incredible things that were happening as you were working and as you were moving, the display of your work in the lives of, of your followers, drove questions to people who did not yet have a belief about you, Jesus. And when the audience was captive and captivated, we thank you that Peter was able to connect what they were seeing with the God he was serving and then had the presence of mind to help to remove the obstacles of faith and end by simply saying, and you, of all people, matter to God, that you are not disqualified from your past, your background, your history. On the opposite of that, you are valued. Jesus, thank you for giving us this extraordinary example and preserving it through antiquity through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.